Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing Christopher Rowe. Is it Rowe? Yes, Christopher Rowe. That's okay. how I pronounced it in my head heard- as I was reading. <laughs> Frank, you, you listened to this, right? I did, yes. Okay, so it's Christopher Rowe from the novel uh, The Blackthorn Key. And to join us, we have a special guest, Frank Cole. Welcome, Frank. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So, uh, Frank, I met you at a panel at Salt Lake Comic Con when we were both on a Harry Potter panel, and I learned you were an author, and I thought I should have him on as a guest on the Protagonist Podcast. And uh, we talked about a couple different possible topics, but we settled on actually talking about this series or, or this book, The Black uh, Thorn Key. Uh, but before we get into that, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your work? Sure. So I am the author of 10 published books so far. Um, I just signed the contract for two more that will come out the next two Januaries. Um, my first series was The Adventures of Hash Brown Winners. There were four books in that, and those came out in 2009, 10, 11. Um, then I wrote the Guardian series, which was, I mean, there's lots of Guardian series. Mine is probably lesser known <laughs> than the other Guardian series, but I wrote three books in that series, and those came out in uh, 2010, 11, and 12. And then I wrote The Afterlife Academy, which was um, – these are all middle-grade novels. Uh, so 9 to 13 is kind of the age range. And then I had The World's Greatest Adventure Machine, which is a roller coaster nova, novel, kind of like a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory meets Jurassic Park type of thing. <laughs> that came out about six months ago. And then I just had another book come out about – uh, less than a month, well, about a month ago, called uh, Potion Masters, The Eternity Elixir. And that's the first book of a trilogy. Um, and so I just got done doing a, a kind of a mini uh, tour through California, Las Vegas, um, uh, and Oregon, touring schools and trying to sell books. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah. That's the hard part is once you write a book, it's you're not done. You got to try to market the book and get it out there to people to read it. So, well, hopefully this will help a little awesome. bit with your marketing. Yeah. That that would be great. has a question for you. I I just have to say Hash Brown Winters is a great name. It is. <laughs> yeah. That's a really my, it's a really I good was, one. I was going to name my son that, but my wife vetoed it, so it became my first novel. <laughs> Yeah, we had actually talked about doing uh, briefly. We talked about uh, maybe doing your most recent novel, and then we both kind of said your publisher might not want us revealing the entire plot on a podcast. That's true. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> so that's how uh, we settled onto the Black uh, Thorn Key. Uh, now, this is a novel that is uh, set in medieval London uh, in the world of kind of apothecary. Uh, uh, how would how would you describe? It? Well, it's, it's it's a little bit like Da Vinci Code. Uh, meets, uh, I, well, I guess Shakespeare <laughs> because of the yeah. setting and time. <laughs> Very um, much so. That's a good, that's a good comparison, I think. So, yeah, and this is also a middle grade novel uh, that follows the adventures of uh, Christopher Rao as um, he gets caught up in this world of secret societies and uh, murder and mystery. So, um, I had not heard of this uh, before you recommended it, Frank. And so my first time reading it was in the last week. Todd, is that the same case for you? Yes. <laughs> so yep. I uh, actually, uh, I, I got the um, the book, the book form of this. I usually, I mean, I've, I have in the past listened to a lot of these novels and this one I read and it was, uh, it was nice. It was nice to, it's nice to pick up a book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lost art. I know. <laughs> it really is. 
Uh, so, Frank, because uh, you kind of introduced us to this, how did you first come to the Blackthorn Key? You know, um, I had seen it uh, at bookstores quite a bit, I, um, and it was always kind of the intriguing. And it had a great, um, a great rec- like a great, great cover blur by I don't know how to say his name, Owen Colfer. Um, he wrote the Artemis Fowl series, which was one of my all-time favorite series of books. And so he's pretty big. And I said, "Oh, well, I'll take a look at it." And I got the Audible, and I loved the reader. Um, and it just kind of sucked me in pretty quick. Um, just with it, how real it was, it felt. It was just a, a really good book. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm going to read the whole series. Um, I just barely uh, finished the first one, so but yeah, I, I really liked it. Yeah, I definitely liked it too, and I, I think that realness is something that's you definitely can feel the research that um, Kevin Sands, the author, put into um, you know correctly presenting uh, the world of 1650s London. Uh, I know I've definitely read some books that are set in different historical time periods where it feels like this person has watched several movies based on that time period. Right. <laughs> uh, this one seemed to have more details that just kind of grounded everything, even as it was in this slightly fantastical world of um, alchemy and apothecaries and things like that. Right. Kind of reminded me of our conversation of um, uh, what Flavia, what is that? Oh, sweetness at the bottom of the pie. And like when you're reading a writer who, uh, I, I mean, I don't know anything about chemistry, but when I was reading that book, I thought, I feel like this writer knows a lot about chemistry <laughs> and I had the same, I had the same sense here. Like, I feel like this guy knows uh, the world of the apothecary and the, uh, the alchemists. Uh, and it's, it's nice to trust the, trust the author like that. Yeah. I've been doing um, quite a bit of reading into uh, Shakespeare's day, you know, so predates this by, you know, a few decades uh, when this was said. I was hoping, I was hoping that you were going to say I've been doing a, a little bit of um, alchemy. But <laughs> no, that is not how that sentence was, was set up to end. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've been trying my own creative writing project uh, set in the era of Shakespeare. And so I've done a lot of reading into London uh, in this time period. And there were so many details that I'd came, you know, come across in doing my research that I saw reflected in this. That makes me feel better about the path I'm on <laughs> to see a published yeah. author. <laughs> You know, dropping in some of those uh, same details into theirs. But it also made me uh, confident that this, uh, again, his name is uh, Kevin Sands, was well-researched in preparing for this one. Cool. All right. A little bit of trivia about this before we get into the long summary. Uh, We have another Canadian author uh, and patron Megan, uh, who had requested that we do the radio show Vinyl Cafe, had asked that we try and it, she joked that she was trying to get us to fill, fill a quota of uh, Canadian representation. But we actually hit uh, quite a few Canadian works at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, his little blurb, Kevin Sands blurb that is on his website and on these books, it says, since escaping from university with a pair of degrees in theoretical physics, Kevin Sands has worked as a researcher a business consultant and a teacher. Uh, he lives in Toronto, Canada, and he is the award- author of the award-winning and best-selling Blackthorn Key series. And this is book one. What we're talking about is book one of this middle grade reader series. Uh, two other books have been released and one more has been announced. Uh, the next two books that have already been published are The Mark of the Plague and The Assassin's Curse. And Blackthorn Key was first published in 2015. All right. So before we get on to this uh, long long synopsis uh listeners we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on patreon if you would also like to support the the show financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least one dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss And now, Joe, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready for this long summary, and then we'll have our freewheeling discussion. It is 1665 in London, and Christopher Rao is an apprentice at an apothecary shop run by Master Benedict. While his master's out, he convinces his friend Tom to help him build a cannon. You see, Christopher found a coded recipe in his master's notes, and being smart and well-trained in puzzles and codes by his master, he has deciphered the recipe for gunpowder. Tom goes along with this, and soon they have a small amount of gunpowder, which they load into a pipe that Christopher holds... (laughs) against his own abdomen 
And then he aims at a pot in the apothecary while Tom lights the fuse. This does not go well. Uh, the kickback from the explosion causes Christopher a significant amount of pain, and he is writhing on the floor when Master Benedict and a fellow apothecary named Hugh arrive. Benedict seems mildly impressed that Christopher cracked the code, but he still gives him a huge load of chores as punishment, which is better than the beatings that most apprentices receive regularly, even if they're not setting off explosives in their master's shops. This is just the the very beginning of a lot of physical pain for Christopher. (laughs) He really goes through the ringer in this. Yeah, I, 370 pages. I, I for a little while, I was like, I should make note of everything that could have given him a concussion as we go through this quick summary. But I just I, I decided to leave that out for the sake of time because it was adding <laughs> quite a bit <laughs> to the summary. Um, a rival apothecary named Stubbs comes and tells Master Benedict that there's been another murder. Someone has been torturing apothecaries and nobles, and this was the sixth murder uh, in recent uh, recent time. Chris is rushed out of the room uh, so that he doesn't overhear the conversation. But later on, he hears Hugh saying that three of the six murdered people were right. So this can't be a coincidence. We don't know what that means exactly at this point. That night, Christopher awakes and thinks that he hears an intruder in the shop. But it turns out to be Master Benedict, who has returned in the middle of the night. And he is badly injured and burned. Christopher gives him medicine to help heal and is leaving him to rest when Benedict says that he has a gift for Christopher. It's a metal box and Benedict hints that there is a mystery to it. Chris studies the symbols and realizes it's a model of the solar system based on this new book by some guy named Galileo. And that where the planet Mercury is on in these symbols, there's a hole in the side of the box. He grabs Quicksilver, also known as Mercury, and drips some into the hole, which causes the square to open up, revealing a shilling hidden inside the box. Chris tells his friend Tom that he often learns this way from his master. Mysteries inside the puzzles, codes inside the symbols. Chris and Tom see the king's warden, Lord Ashcombe, uh, who is out hunting for the murderer that has been terrifying the city and everyone's kind of scared of Lord Ashcombe, even as they hope he catches the murder. It's one of those situations. Uh, they see him go by uh, to a garden where uh, people have dug up a badly burnt body that has obviously only recently been buried. The next morning, Chris has to open up the shop himself because Master Benedict never returned from his night out. Fortunately, uh, Chris has been well-trained by his kind master, and he knows exactly what to do. Master Benedict returns a few hours later, and after a while, he uh, Master Benedict looks around and sees some people in a shop, and something changes in his aspect, and he turns to Chris, and for the first time ever, he hits him and calls him a worthless apprentice and sends him off on a fool's errand that makes no sense, and Chris knows this is going to take hours. He is hurt and confused by this, but he does as he is been instructed but when he returns after completing this errand he finds that his master has been murdered at the apothecary uh, shop a crowd forms and the king's warden lord ashcombe comes he questions chris about what happened but chris doesn't actually know very much some witnesses uh, have told the warden that they saw benedict hit chris that afternoon so the warden seems a little suspicious of chris looking at the ledger um to see who the last patrons that were helped were uh, doesn't help the warden because the ledger was kept in a code and Chris notices it is a message for him and he rips out the last page of the ledger when nobody's looking. Stubbs and other members of the Apothecary Guild come and Stubbs insists that he should inherit the, the shop since Benedict has been stealing recipes from him but the, the guild leaders mostly just roll their eyes at Stubbs and say that they're going to take <laughs> control of the shop until they can find Benedict's will. The warden is a bit harsh towards one member of the guild leadership, a man named Oswin, whom Charles likes because uh, Oswin was the one who gave him his exam to become an apprentice. And after a very tough exam, he was very kind to him. So Charles kind of likes this Oswin, but uh, the warden only calls Oswin Puritan. And let's just say that it's been a messy period of religion and government in England. King Charles only recently claimed power back from Cromwell. Things are very murky. And so that's pretty normal, actually, for British history. <laughs> As to which which religion is the right one to be. Uh, Stubbs and Charles do not get along. And when Charles tries to reclaim the box that Benedict gave him, Stubbs stops him because everything in the shop belongs to the guild. And Stubbs hopes that everything in the shop will soon belong to him. Chris spends the night at his friend Tom's house. And after much trial and error, deciphers a part of the code on uh, that was on that page of the ledger that he ripped out. It says, Hughes Forth, below the lions, the gates of paradise. And that doesn't mean anything to him, but they know they need to go visit Hugh. They also discover on this page of the ledger a second hidden code. It was the old lemon juice uh, trick. And after they <laughs> the page with a candle, they see another code and they try and use the same key on it, but they only get back gibberish. They try to visit Hugh, but he's not home. Later, they return to Benedict's apothecary to try and steal back Chris's box, but they find the place has been ransacked. Only then do they discover that it is in the act of being ransacked by Stubbs <laughs> and uh, Stubbs' apprentice Watt. 
they hide and they overhear Stubbs complaining about the lousy job of pumping Benedict for information that his apprentice Watt did while murdering Benedict. Benedict, it turns out, took poison to prevent himself from being able to reveal anything while being tortured. And Chris and Tom make a diversion and sneak out and go to the Apothecary Guild where they find uh, where where Chris finds Oswin and tells him what he overheard between Stubbs and Watt. So now he knows Stubbs was the murderer. Oswin tells him to stay in his office while he goes to talk to the Grandmaster of the Apothecary Guild. Chris says he'll do that, then he immediately leaves because he's got plans. He gets Tom and they break into Hugh's house because Hugh's still in home. And they search trying to figure out what this clue could possibly mean. And when they get to the fourth floor, they look out a window and they see a pair of lion statues that are in front of a gate. So they go back down and they go and find that gate. And behind the gate, they find a mausoleum, which has a subtle apothecary symbol on the floor. And when they push on that symbol, a secret panel opens up and they go down this ladder that leads to a cavernous room that has a mural of Michael the Archangel slaying a dragon painted on the wall. In the mural, they find three small holes with symbols uh, above them. Chris only recognizes the symbol for mercury. Uh, and in the in the room, there are shells of apothecary ingredients. So he finds the mercury and pours it in, and they hear a click, but then nothing else happens. Uh, they go back out to Tom's house, but Tom's parents won't let Chris stay there because Lord Ashcombe is looking for Chris. Uh, Chris goes back to the apothecary guild, and another apprentice is there and takes him to Austin's office to wait. While he's waiting, he realizes that he tried to crack that second part of the code in English, but Latin has different numbers of letters in the alphabet, so it would decode differently. So he tries uh, using the same kind of cipher, but with uh, Latin instead of English, and he decodes it, and it says, Isaac has the key. Now, Chris knows that Isaac was Benedict's dear friend and a bookseller, so he's going to have to go visit him next. Uh, while looking out the window of the office where he's just waiting, he sees Oswin and the Grand Master leave the guild hall, and then he recognizes an, apprenti- uh, an apprentice that's there as one of the people that was in the shop the day Benedict was murdered, and he realizes that He's in a bad situation. (laughs) The only people in this place are uh, apprentices who he thinks may have murdered Benedict. So Chris tries to escape and it's a long entertaining chase and fight that involves a lot of dangerous chemicals being used as weapons. Eventually he escapes. Uh, The next day he disguises himself because the town crier is yelling out that there's a 20 pound reward for anyone who turns Chris in because he's wanted for the murder of Master Benedict. And Hugh, that burned body they saw uh, the day before, uh, was Hugh's. And also Stubbs has been killed, and he's wanted uh, for questioning in the murder of Stubbs. And this confuses uh, Chris at first, because he he thought Stubbs was the mastermind behind everything. In disguise, uh, Chris and Tom make their way to Isaac the bookseller. Isaac locks the shop and reveals a secret passageway down to a massive library. That's right, there's a secret society descended from the Knights Templar in this book. <laughs> Always awesome for the Knights Templar to show up. It just, uh, it like checks all the right boxes for me. (laughs) Me too. Uh, So Isaac and Benedict were part of this secret society. Isaac was a bookkeeper or the librarian. Benedict and Hugh were alchemists. And they were all trying to unlock the mystery of God's fire. God's fire is what they call prima materia, the first matter. And they know it could be the ultimate power. Isaac doesn't want to know what Chris has already discovered uh, because the, the secret society deliberately kind of like they only kept pieces of information. And then no one ever had the whole picture of what was going on. But Isaac does give Chris a piece of paper that had been written by Benedict that gives him the meaning of the symbols on the door in the mausoleum. So they go back, uh, they go back down to the mural. They put mercury in one lock, one lock. They leave empty because it had the symbol for air on it, which is awesome. If you've got three things to pour things into, you leave one empty. I liked that twist. Uh, and the other one gets salt water. And once the right weight of the mercury and the salt water and the two locks and the other one is empty, something clicks and the door opens and they see an awesome apparatus on the backside that is, uh, running all the secret, uh, you know, weights and, and counter counterweights that allows the door to open. And inside that door is the, the greatest apothecary laboratory they've ever seen. They look around. There's a side room that is covered in ash and residue from explosions. And on the table, there's this vial of yellow liquid. Chris reads the notes in the room and he realizes that this vial is Archangel's fire. Uh, Benedict discovered the right recipe for it. Uh, Just when he figures this out, Tom knocks that vial over. (laughs) which is not a good thing. And it starts to roll off the table and Chris grabs Tom, pulls him out of the room and it explodes. And I mean, really explodes like that explosion when he was holding the gunpowder against his own stomach. That is nothing compared to the explosion that happens in this room when uh, Archangel's fire falls over. 
So he wakes up. He must have a concussion or multiple concussions from the beatings that he's had. (laughs) I've left out a couple beatings that he got and (laughs) other explosions that he was right next to. Uh, But he wakes up and he's, he's figured out everything. All the pieces have connected for him. He gives Tom two letters to deliver with exact times of when they need to be delivered to specific people. Then he spends that night reading his master's recipe and warnings, and he he works all night long to prepare something. And the next day, he waits outside the mausoleum, and Oswin arrives, having received a letter from Tom. And um, Oswin, uh, you know, says, well, you you wanted me to meet you. And Chris says, uh, Benedict left me the recipe for Archangel's Fire in the, the silver box, and he holds up the silver box. And Oswald just smiles at him and says, why do you think that matters to me? And Charles says, well, don't you want this? And Oswald says, well, you want me to announce that I want it. So I will. And you see, he yells out, that's what I killed your master for, isn't it? Basically. And just then Ashcomb leaps out to arrest Oswald, who has just confessed to murder. But Oswald was several steps ahead and he had his people already kill Ashcomb's guards that were in hiding all around the mausoleum. And Ashcomb is basically alone, but he makes a good fight, but he's so outnumbered that he's seriously wounded. I mean, seriously yeah. wounded <laughs> before <laughs> Oswald stops his men from making a killing blow. So now you've got Ashcomb basically dying on the ground uh, and Chris is surrounded by Oswin and his men and Oswin taunts Chris about not thinking far enough ahead then he tortures Chris by pouring basically acid onto his chest uh, until he reveals the secret entrance entrance to the alchemist's lair in the mausoleum down there Oswin and his men find a sample of Archangel's fire and they set it off in the test room and the explosion is as magnificent as before and Oswin is just giddy uh, and Chris and uh, Lord Ashcombe are over in the corner of the room and Chris is kind of signaling some stuff to Lord uh, Ashcombe and then uh, Oswin begins to gloat and uh, about how he's going to remove the wicked King Charles from the throne and one of his men says hey why is the ceiling on fire and Oswin looks up and sees four fuses running along the ceiling that were lit by that explosion in the other room. And there, the fuses are running to bundles in all of the corners. And Chris throws himself and the wounded Ashcomb into the large metal stove that's in the corner of the room, just as there's the biggest explosion yet. And then we get to the quick aftermath. Uh, Tom comes and helps Ashcomb and Chris get out of the secret lair, uh, where he takes them to the Tower of London, where Chris and Ashcomb convalesce. Ashcomb asks Chris why he let himself be tortured if he had already set a trap for Oswin down in the secret room. Like, why didn't you just take him down to the secret room? And Chris says Oswin had to think he had won for the trap to work because Oswin would have been suspicious if Chris took him down too easily. Isaac, uh, the bookkeeper, he had a copy of Benedict's will and Benedict left his shop and all of his materials to Chris as soon as he becomes of age. And Ashcombe pressures the apothecary guild to allow Chris to be apprenticed to a new master until he comes of age, at which point he will inherit uh, Benedict's shop. The end. Well done. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, I left out a lot of fun mystery elements, <laughs> but sometimes you got to do that if you're going to try to keep a summary to about five minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great to relive the story. When, just hearing that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember that. So that was really good to hear it all over again. So I don't have to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that stood out to me as I was reading this, something happened that I see happen fairly often in stories with um, kind of plans upon plans being set into motion. And it's always interesting to me to see how authors deal with this. And this is when your main character who either an omniscient narrator is following, or in this case, it's a first person narration um, often. So it's, uh, you know, his own actions, his own thoughts. Uh, but they set up a plan that you have to keep the reader in the dark about. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's always like, I'm always fascinated with how authors try and, and walk this one. This one just kind of says, Chris knew what he had to do. And then he gave Tom two letters. <laughs> and so we don't see him um, really set up those fuses on the ceiling that are going to be lit by the uh, explosion because that needs to be a surprise for the reader. But heist films almost always have to do this where uh, your main characters that you've been following the entire time do something that the audience doesn't see. And then it gets revealed later that they did this thing. And this one, like it wasn't the worst. I don't know that it was the best way to handle that, but it's just always tricky to see authors or or filmmakers have to ride this balance of following a character, following a character, keeping something secret from the audience, revealing it all at the end, and then explaining what the character did in that moment that the audience was held out from. And very true. So as, as you said, it's a first person narration and, and throughout the entire book, Christopher Rowe keeps the reader completely informed of what's going on in his mind everywhere around, except for that moment where nothing is revealed until it's all exploded. So yeah, I agree with you. It's, pretty, it's <laughs> tricky. It's a tricky uh, balance trying to find a way to do that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a bait and switch, right? Like you feel 
I mean, so much of this is about um, puzzles and solving puzzles. And I think what part of what makes it so readable is that you're kind of swept along with this and you feel like um, you're figuring this out along. And then <laughs> to have to have the curtain just get pulled over things for a minute, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Uh, but, but I mean, there's no other way to do it and, and still have your, your big reveal. So like, yeah, I, I can't I know that, that it's a not, it's not a big knock on it. It's just, I think it's pointing out one of the, the challenges of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can't think of a better way that I've seen done. I can definitely think of worse ways <laughs> uh, that I've seen done, but it's just something that always stands out again, mostly in like heist films and mysteries. Do you see this kind of moment have to happen uh, for the author? And I imagine I can only imagine like authors sitting there for a while with like writer's block. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to yeah. reveal just the right amount yeah. and not too much? And I, I think you did an okay job, but it always kind of stands out when you do come to that moment in a narrative for me. Yeah. I will say about listening to the audible version of it, which was fantastic. The reader was fantastic, but whenever there were codes that had to be, read they read the read the entire code so that was really boring when you're listening to that (laughs) and it's like it takes about five minutes of a b g all stop this 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 it was it took forever i was gonna ask because i um i also read uh this instead of listening to the audiobook and i certainly have listened to audiobooks for some of the discussions that we have but like um when they come to the symbol that's on uh, the cube that his master gives him, like in the book, we're given this picture of what is it? One, two, three, four, five, like six circles with a star symbol in the center and uh, some dots where planets are. How does that get described in an audible narration? It was difficult. It was very difficult. I actually didn't uh, quite understand. And when you just said the the six circles, that's all new to me because I I need to look at the book to see the actual uh, image of it because that was not, I don't think that's how it was described. I just, I just imagine a very interesting, Interesting puzzle box with mercury um, somewhere. (laughs) I just accepted it as a confusing box. But uh, yeah, that was, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, yeah, because I I was going to ask you exactly that question, though, about like these long strings of numbers that we get in the text where like my eye just kind of passes over them and that's it (laughs) um, on the page when it's it's like, this is gibberish code. So they actually read out all of that. Every, Every bit of it. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, I hope you took the time audibly to de- decipher the code, to sit there and think, wait, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> As the narrator's flying by. Because I'm sure, I mean, I know you could look at what's on the page here. And especially once you're given the key, you could go back and, re- you know, decipher everything. Because um, these are real codes that he's using in this book. Um, but yeah, in, a, in an audible narration, I'm sure it just flies right by. You're like, mm, yeah, it's, okay. and they kind of frown upon you stopping or driving and writing down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's frowned upon. <laughs> One thing that I really particularly enjoyed about this book is how much of Christopher's character we get revealed in this opening scene of him building, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, building the gunpowder. It's, it's, it's just such a great uh, trick to kind of tell us, okay, you've got a kid who's really smart. Uh, you've got a kid who is um, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like he's handy. Like he figures things out and he figures out how to do them himself. Mm-hmm. He's also a little bit foolish <laughs> because, uh, and, and foolhardy. Uh, you know, he, he just pushes ahead uh, with what he thinks is right. And so you get this wonderful picture painted of him. And I was thinking about this. Um, so often when you get those kind of quick character sketches, uh, the flaws that you see are either going to be what needs to be corrected by the end of the story, like his first character growth, or it's going to be what solves, you know, like, like what makes sure. him different from everyone else is what's going to be the key to his victory in the end. And I was trying to think, what do we get for Chris? <laughs> but by the end, like, <laughs> do, which one of those is it? And it's, I guess, a little bit of both. Like he needs to learn his lesson about planning ahead more. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which he does, but his plan is still pretty foolhardy. <laughs> it's true. I also think it tells a lot about uh, Master Benedict and, and how great of a master he was because there's no way Christopher would have done all these things if he guaranteed a beating at the end of it every single time he was going to get uh, just walloped by his master where Benedict never hit him except for that one incident and so he had a trusting master that gave him a lot of freedom and but that freedom ended up with disasters quite often in the book so <laughs> he has a lot of <laughs> a lot of freedom he does <laughs> at what point is is it just too much? <laughs> I guess. I guess uh, making cannons inside of the apothecary shop is still not quite 
uh, over the line. <laughs> it, it's towing the line. It's just towing the line. I think Chris learned a pretty brutal lesson <laughs> when it says the uh, the kickback from the cannon gets him right in the groin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think the uh, – the consequences of that would be much larger than what we get in the book, which is just him groaning on the floor for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I like this. I like this kind of storytelling um, where the, it's a series of puzzles that are, that are tied together. I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice way to like a nice pattern for storytelling. It works well. Um, to kind of keep stringing you along. Um, you talked about uh, Da Vinci Code and we talked about um, National Treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I- I've been thinking a lot about like patterns and storytelling. Um, I'm teaching this class on the hero's journey right now. We've been talking about that. And um, it, it, it's, it's uh, I mean, hero's journey isn't the only, uh, the only pattern in storytelling. And this is kind of another way to get a character from point A to point B is to um, have this series of puzzles. And uh, I just, I, I don't know. I, I think it, it works well. I think it's well done in this book. I think so too. I think uh, Kevin Sands uh, is quite brilliant of just the amount he reveals at certain moments. But then as he's revealing certain parts of the, the puzzle, he's at, he's heaping up more upon it. And, and um, it was quite satisfying when it all came together at the end. Um, and quite honestly, I did not see Oswin as the, uh, I mean, I kind of did when, when he got near the end, when things were starting to wrap up, I kind of could tell that Oswin was going to be bad, but I thought it was Stubbs this whole time. And I, and I really did. And I said, well, he's revealing that pretty quick that Stubbs is the, is the antagonist of the book. And yet Mm. he really wasn't the main antagonist. He was just a pawn in it. I thought it was very clever. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. The, um, you know, you, he presents who you think is going to be the bad guy and he reveals him as the bad guy. But then when he gets killed, you're like, wait, yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, so th- th- there's something more. Um, and I think it could have been a satisfying book with just, you know, the one bad guy, yeah. but it's more satisfying to get these layers. And it's one of those puzzles within the puzzles that gets built out through the book. Yeah. And I think he is, you have to make each one of these reveals satisfying in and of itself and then only realize later on that it was actually a, a new clue. Yeah. So like when he, when he gets the puzzle box from his master and pours the mercury in and he discovers the shilling, like discovering the shilling, like, Oh, it's kind of cool that he doesn't just give him a gift. He's, he's testing him. And that could be the end of that and feel sufficient. Right. You know, and satisfactory enough that this was uh, introduced in the, you know, like the, the box is introduced as a Chekhov's gun and it went off when you solved the mystery and you could say, Oh, yeah. that was all. But later on, when you get down to the mural and you see, oh, he was training him to solve this kind of puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> in the mural wall where you got to pour the right amount of uh, the right element to give the exact amount of weight uh, before something else is going to unlock just like the box did. Um, and, and I think in a less skilled author's hand, when you're getting the the next puzzle piece that's going to be future, you know, a future reveal down the line, it just screams new puzzle piece. To the, to the reader, whereas oh. this feels like you've snapped a puzzle piece into place and it's not till you're several chapters down that you look back at it and you say, oh, that piece of the puzzle is revealing something. Yeah, that's, it's great. I, I agree. I mean, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I insist. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about um, reading comprehension lately and, um, and I've, got, I've got all these kids in elementary school and they're, they're all kind of at different stages, but they're all... Um, they're all working on uh, understanding literature better uh, and, and reading comprehension. And we've been listening to the Harry Potter books. And, uh, and just today I was telling them we're at the very beginning right now of prisoner as a uh, prisoner of Azkaban. And I was telling them, okay, remember the last time we read a Harry Potter book, there was all this stuff at the beginning of the story that we thought wasn't important. And it turned out it was really important. <laughs> and, and so let's like let's really pay attention to this uh, to this early stuff. And like the Blackthorn Key isn't the most sophisticated uh, story ever written. It's written for the audience uh, f- for which it's written. Uh, but I think that it does a really good job of. I mean, there's, there's I think there's a good um, uh, like pedagogy <laughs> in this in that um, these early things are all going to matter. So pay attention. 
and keep things in your mind. And I think it's an important skill for, for all readers, but especially for younger readers to be able to read something and then kind of file it back in their mind and then to be able to pull it forward again. Um, and so, I mean, as an adult, it's satisfying, but for a kid, it's like a vital, kind of a vital <laughs> skill that they're developing as they're reading the story. I think. Yeah. Talking about um, Harry Potter. I still remember the first reading the first book. I mean, I was a teenager by then, so I was a little beyond, but I still remember when it got to the discussion of Nicholas Flamel and they're trying mm-hmm. to solve the mystery of who this is. I remember thinking, I know I read this in this book. <laughs> like, I know I read that <laughs> name here. <laughs> and I actually, I remember flipping back because I could kind of remember where it was on a page, but I couldn't remember what page, but I like flipped back and kept looking and looking until I found the the chocolate uh, frog card. I'm like, oh, yeah. there it is. She did tell us uh, at the very beginning. And that's another one of those moments where you could think the reveal of the chocolate card frog uh chocolate frog card is the end in and of itself right it's a cool quirk of the wizarding world helps to immerse you it's world building uh it, it separates harry you know harry's crossing of the threshold into the unknown world this is one of those unknown things and that could be the end of itself but it wasn't for jk rowling right it was right. uh keep it of information had been revealed you just didn't know it was key until much yeah, much later absolutely. yeah uh frank if you were going to try and describe the character of Christopher Rowe, and I'm asking you this as an author who creates characters, uh, what works for him as a character that kind of makes him stand out from some of the other, uh, you know, characters that, you know, uh, are, are stereotypical characters? What what makes him work as a protagonist? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, well, I think he's uh... – I might have to pause for a second to think of it. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> Todd, you can, you can ponder on that. I'm going to ponder it as too, because I imagine we'll have a little discussion about yeah, this. So. Stumped me. Um, let's see. As, so what, what makes him work as a good character? I think for one, um, he's, I think he appreciates his background. He appreciates what he went through and, and he really enjoys what he does. He, he wants to be an apothecary. That is his dream to do that. And it's because he was rescued, so to speak, from this orphanage and, and probably, probably uh, giving given a life that he wouldn't really enjoy. And because he showed promise, he he's capturing uh, uh, or he's seizing the day, so to speak with his, with this skill and so he appreciates it and he and he's good at what he does um he he memorizes how to how to do certain things with the mad apple uh putting the mad apple seeds to make certain amount makes it healthy helps you uh cure uh, with remedies with certain things and other too much of the mad apple seeds can poison he just remembers these things and he puts it to work and i, I really like that and, and a lot of books that i've read where the characters don't understand their skill, they don't appreciate it until way later in, in the series um, when they when they appreciate, well, this is what I can do. He realizes that at the very beginning and he uses it to his advantage the entire book. Um, he's constantly recalling things that Master Benedict has taught him. He's using that skill uh, with the different vials and elixirs and the, the tonics that he can um, – that he can find at, at his fingertips. And I just love that, that he just captures the moment from the, from the very get go. And he just, he, he owns it. I don't know. I think that's one of the things that really, that really attracted me to him is just how much he just owns his leg. Uh, well, this, this, his, I don't know if the legacy is the right word, but his destiny, he, he just owns it. And this is what he's going to do. And there's a chance where he might not be the apothecary after all at the very end. And that's the most devastating thing that could have happened to him. Yeah. I love that when he says, so, I don't want your money. I yeah, want I like my life. I want my life back. Like, and it, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't like he was, um, living in the lap of luxury or something, right? Like right. <laughs> he's not some spoiled brat who's saying, I want my life back. He's just saying, I, I had plans and I was really good at something. And, and I, you know, maybe I didn't have much, but the thing that I had was really good. And, <laughs> and that's what I want more than, more than this money. Yeah, he regardless of how much it is. He appreciated yeah. his, what he had. And um, that's, that's a good life lesson in and of itself, just to appreciate what you have and make it work and own it. And um, yeah, he's a, he's a great character in that sense. I agree with what you were saying about um, his skill and uh, this mastery that he has over the thing that he does. Um, It never feels like he never feels like Superman. 
Um, and we were, we kind of laughed about how, how much he gets beat up in this, but <laughs> really, he really <laughs> just gets pounded. He does. And, and you can feel it. Uh, and, um, I mean, every time he gets hit, it hurts. And <laughs> when he lays down and he, like, he's just kind of groaning. And, uh, I think you feel the, the, the physical, um, toll that this adventure takes on him. Uh, I like that about him. Um, I like that he's, he's skilled, but he's not, um, like all powerful right. and he makes, he makes mistakes and, uh, I think it makes him, uh, feel a little bit more authentic. And then this, this appreciation that he has for, um, uh, for Benedict and just how much he loved him and, and what a drive that is. And when he has the opportunity to, to leave and it looks like, um, you know, logic would say your best bet is just to get out of Dodge because, because I mean, everybody is dying. There's this remarkable, like two or three pages where, it's revealed that, you know, last night, like five more people were murdered or something. Yeah. The bad guys are getting desperate and you know, I mean, he knows that they're coming after him. Uh, and yet he says, no, I've got to do this uh, and, and see this all the way through and, and makes you want to root for him more. I think um, so he has a lot going for him as a character. Within this story, so much of the conflict is external, right? Like he, he's there's a group of murderers <laughs> and there's a conspiracy and he needs to solve the conspiracy and stop the murderers. So, so there's this very external threat. But I think one thing that works for him as a character is that there's some sorts of conflict that are internal to him um, and that it, it things that can simultaneously be a strength and a weakness for his character. So um, his brashness, mm-hmm. you know, that he's willing to build a cannon <laughs> and, and shoot it while holding it. Like that's not the greatest thing. It, and that same brashness gets him into trouble at times. His intelligence, like if it was the, the just an average apprentice and treated it with an average master apprentice situation, he would not be pulled into this conspiracy. Like he gets put into a lot of danger because of his intelligence but at the same time his intelligence allows him to get out of it. So these things um, that, that in one scene can be a strength and another scene, get him into trouble. And, and I think that is, is good writing where um, there, there can be the temptation to just say, Oh, you know, whatever's the virtue is always the virtue. And I think Sans is a good job of creating um, these these character traits that both serve and uh, serve Chris uh, well in, in getting him out of danger, but also put him into more danger and also create some conflict mm-hmm. within himself. I think also uh, he's he, like you said that holding the can cannon is kind of this brashness, this willingness to take risks, um, so borders stupidity in in certain instances, but he <laughs> takes those risks at the end where he outsmarts. Lord uh, or Oswin, he outsmarts this genius yeah. by la- allowing himself to be tortured. Ultimately, um, that's pretty pretty brave to have acid and allowing the acid to be dropped on your chest um, because you're going to outsmart this genius, and it works. Yeah, it was so satisfying um, when Oswin was so smug about. You have to think several yeah. moves ahead. And <laughs> you only thought one move ahead. It was so satisfying when you realize, oh, he was thinking yeah. several moves ahead. Uh, but part of that thinking several moves ahead was to look defeated. Uh, and, and, you know, his age allowed that to happen more easily. And also, like you said, he allowed himself to get outright tortured. It wasn't just like he turned into a whimpering, you know, fetal position where it looked like he was he was defeated. He allowed himself um to go, uh, you know, far enough along the plank that it, it looked completely convincing to Oswin. Uh, and uh, Oswin was um, conceited enough to believe he had always won and always was going to win. <laughs> so, you know, when, when the turn came, he was willing to accept that, of course, I've defeated this apprentice. He was only an apprentice. I think that scene of the, the torture is another uh, really good example of that. Um, uh, just like well-planned writing. So you get the introduction of uh, the oil of vitriol, is that what's called? Yeah. And then, uh, and then you see it used on the door, and you think, great, <laughs> right? Like Chekhov's gun went off. Uh, and then when he pulls it out again, and you think, oh no, 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 no! <laughs> like I, I already have seen what this does on a door. Um, and 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 the the description of it is, um, it's like just the right uh, balance of. I mean, it, it goes just just far enough along where it's it's horrifying, <laughs> disgusting, uh, but not like um, gratuitous. You know. In the middle grade <laughs> <Yeah>. level, <laughs> it stays it it stays for the audience that it's uh, for which it's intended. But um, I, I I I thought that was um, just well done, like well paced, 
uh, good mechanics in the story. And I feel like mechanically, for the most part, the story works. Like I don't, I don't find um, big holes in this or where you're thinking, oh, that didn't make sense. Um, I feel like it gets a little bit murky with so many, um, so many apprentices running around. It was hard for me to keep track sometimes of, of who belonged to who, uh, at what point when he's locked in the, uh, when he's locked in uh, Oswald's office. Um, I felt like that was maybe the one part of the story where I got bogged down with, uh, there were just so many characters names and who's the elephant, who's what, and who belongs to who. Um, but I think it's also part of the story is that, um, I mean, that's part of the reveal in the end uh, is that th- that wasn't making sense to him either. Because one of the apprentices um, is Oswin's apprentice. Like right. it is this process of elimination to re- to figure it out. And I guess this is like a smaller version of the issue I talked about at the end where some information suddenly gets withheld from the audience for the purpose of the later reveal. Um, him making that recognition that this is Oswin's apprentice isn't told to us as the audience right mm-hmm. then. That's one of the things that gets monologued out at the end when he's talking to Oswin and Oswin's asking about what has happened in the story so far, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that, I like the, I like your verb uh, to monologue out something, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is a, a lot of exposition that happens at the, at the end of this, lots of talking talking about and this was my and this was your plan and this was my plan and i always wonder like in real life is that how bad guys really act like stand around and talk talk it all out like, uh, I, I think it was yeah. uh in incredibles that's where the the verb i remember a comic book writer saying we finally have the right term yeah. for this <laughs> like someone who has written comic books is like incredible thank you for giving us the right descriptor uh for the for this moment for me like this is clearly a mystery right where you get um you know and all these clues laid out and everything but the end when you get all these different versions of what just happened that really made me think of a heist Mm -hmm, story um, where like you're you're told what one person thought was happening and then the other person reveals what was really going on the whole time and so it's just interesting to see those two genres kind of like line up perfectly there at the end absolutely (laughs) it's fun it's a good it's a good story i like that are there any other characters that stood out to you guys that you want to make sure we touch on? I think we already touched a little bit about Master Benedict, who we don't have for very long in the story. But uh, talking about the hero cycle like you did uh, earlier, or the hero's journey, that he was a great mentor figure. But you know the mentor figures have to go for our hero <laughs> to grow into themselves. Uh, I really liked Tom. I thought he was a good uh, secondary character, a good best friend, uh, uh, loyal to a fault. Um, I think that's what the description of the book said. Um, and he really was. He 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 put himself at risk. He took beatings for, at the hand of his own dad um, and from Lord Ashcombe um, to defend. You don't, I don't think you realize how much of a friend he is to Christopher until there's that scene where Lord Ashcombe is almost – to the point of killing Tom, um, but Tom will not give away his his best friend, and I, I think that just shows tremendous loyalty. And I think he was a great character, and you know he ends up whacking the one guy with a with a rolling pin, and, 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 <laughs> yeah, and gets an invitation to join the royal guard or whatever it was because he he can wield a, a rolling pin really well. Really well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Lord Ashcombe was was impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Tom, in some ways, reminded me of oh, what is the name of the rabbit? We talked about uh, Watership Down over a year ago. At this point, oh, uh, Bigwig, Big Bigwig, yeah, uh, I get, that. I can is, see that. Who is just yeah, he's bigger, stronger than the leader, uh, but he's just completely loyal to the leader's vision and, and Watership Down, and uh, and that's what I got for Tom. <laughs> he's bigger, he's stronger, and he's loyal, but he's also not strictly obedient. Yeah. Yeah, his mm-hmm. his loyalty isn't I'm going to do exactly what you say. His loyalty is I'm going to do what's best for you, even if you don't think it's what's best <laughs> that's for a you. Good, that's a good – I agree with that, yeah. I like that. I feel like there weren't a ton of really developed uh, secondary characters in this. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's pretty uh, – I mean, uh, for as complicated as some of the puzzles are and puzzles inside of puzzles and things, I feel like that's where, um, where Sans really spent most of his creative energy – uh, and a, a lot of the side characters that I think could be interesting um, in a book, maybe written for a different audience uh, or that was longer or something. Uh, I think some of these um, certainly could have been fleshed out. Tom's sister. I felt like there was kind of a thing between Tom's sister and Chris. Seemed like it. And maybe that, yeah, maybe maybe that gets uh, um, developed more in the later books. I'd be surprised if it doesn't. 
um, just because of the way that it was set up and then didn't really go. There's also the girl from the orphanage uh, where I felt like there was a thing with the girl from the orphanage. Maybe he's a Han Solo kind of a guy and he just has a thing for it. (laughs) Well, well, there's also the one guy that had lost his son and uh, Mm -hmm. the house was somewhat felt like it had a haunted house feeling to it. Yeah. He was kind of plugged in there, but then not really explored I kept waiting for his son to magically appear and he hasn't been dead all this time. He actually is there at the house, <laughs> but that never gets figured out. But maybe like, in, like you said, maybe in the next book, they'll explore that more, but he was an interesting character that I didn't feel like I get enough of him um, understood his background. Yeah. That was actually the one I was going to say uh, the doctor. I can't remember the doctor's name. It was Dr. Yeah. Something. And I left him entirely out of the plot summary because it didn't really matter mm-hmm. to Chris's story in this one, but I felt like maybe Sans is playing a long game with a multi-book series and he's going to become more significant. So for listeners, I didn't, I didn't cover this, but it's um, a house that was burned down and his family died. The only survivor is the doctor, his, his wife and kids uh, died though. And he's kind of, everyone talks about him like he's crazy because he still talks about his son being alive in the house basically and that's the house where chris spends one of the nights when he's out hiding and before he disguises himself um and goes back out into london that's what like his safe spot because no one ever goes to this burned out house because the crazy doctor is living there but the, the the most interesting moment is that uh uh, the doctor says, well, you can have James. I think this is son's name was James. It's like, you you can stay in James's room with yeah. him uh, tonight. And then uh, Chris just has this awful night because he's in so much pain because he's been beat up <laughs> multiple times at this point. He can't sleep. His back is killing him. And in the morning, the doctor comes in and says, James says you didn't have a very good night's rest. I hope tomorrow is better for you. <laughs> or something like that. But clearly implying that the ghost of James, at least, is hanging around this house. So it never gets, you know, solidified or explicitly stated. But it's it's definitely implied that there's something supernatural happening in this yeah, house. I, I and Sans has shown us that he's capable of playing the long game. Like, I mean, the whole, <laughs> I mean, we've, we've, we've cited quite a few instances of where he'll introduce something initially and you think it's kind of played itself out. And then it turns out that it hasn't, and there's a big reveal. And, um, and I'm mean, knowing that, that this is a series we would, uh, I think not be, uh, wrong. I mean, I hope <laughs> that we would not be wrong in thinking that some of these things that are introduced now um, will be reintroduced later and fleshed out more. Um, so, well, even in a minor way, I mean, uh, when uh, Chris is convalescing in the tower, it says that he, he hears a report that uh, plague is uh, popping up on the outskirts of London. Mm-hmm. And he's, he says, you know, that that could be uh, dangerous if it ever comes into the city. And the next book is titled The Mark of the Plague. <laughs> so <laughs> I think right then he's giving a little teaser uh, of you know, a major plot point Absolutely. in the next book. Yeah. That's about all I've got, I think. Any final thoughts, Frank? No, I think you guys covered it great. That's uh, it, it really it helped solidify my thoughts on how well how great a story this was. I really enjoyed it. And and. I, I I don't like to admit this, but I do give up on books quite not not all, often. But if a book doesn't capture my interest after a certain point, I just feel my time of reading is so valuable. I I got to move on. And this one, I could not. I would often sit in my driveway and just keep listening because I wanted to hear what was happening. <laughs> really good, interesting story. Great great characters um, and characters. I think. Lord Ashcombe was a very intriguing character that stayed true to his character the entire time. Even when he, even when uh, Christopher saved him, he's still kind of a gruff, grumpy man that, but he, he, you can see a softer side, like a, like a, a a grateful side, but at the same time, he's still, he's a tough dude. You know, he's, he's got to protect the King against this whole army of, of uh, evil people that are trying to take him down. So. Yeah, I think he was another great character we didn't spend much time talking about, but you understand why everyone was scared of him, uh, but you also understand why the king trusts yeah. him so much mm-hmm. <laughs> simultaneously. Uh, and that's another one where I could see in a future novel him being part of Chris's little fellowship of, of helpers yeah, I agree. Who, I think so. who go with him on, on adventures. Absolutely. Well, Frank, uh, anytime we have a first-time guest, uh, we ask them a question because this is a podcast about great characters and great stories. We ask uh, guests, if you could have a dinner party with any three to five fictional characters, who would you want to have around you just for an evening so you could enjoy the conversation and the interactions? Yeah, this was a tough question. I I started thinking about this and uh, I read a ton of middle grade because that's what I write. So I'm always reading middle grade um, books and and typically – 
middle grade characters, I don't know if they would make great dinner party guests. Um, <laughs> I mean, you think about most of them are kids. Most of them are mischievous. Most of them are, you know, causing messes or destruction where they go. That's just kind of – that's par for the course. I thought about Harry Potter. I would love Harry Potter. But then again, in in those books – He's kind of uh, going through some difficult times of his own. He'd be a very difficult character to understand. I don't know if he'd say much at my dinner party. I thought Arthur Weasley, Weasley would be an interesting person to have at a dinner party because he's so friendly. And he'd be he'd be asking me questions because I'm a muggle. He would care really about – he oh, would yeah. love to know everything. And so it would be – I think the conversation would go on for hours and hours because he would just be wanting to know so much more about myself. And that would make a great dinner guest. Um I liked I was I, this was hard. I thought about Robert Neville from I don't know if you've read I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, but uh, I like a good I like a good <laughs> I, I like a good it. ghost story. And uh, I think he in the book uh, different you know it differs differs from the movie quite a bit. But in the book he is this legendary uh, vampire slayer that he's legendary throughout all the vampires. They they see him as their mm-hmm. uh, he's the boogeyman. Yeah, and he's, he's I, the boogeyman's boogeyman. He's the boogeyman's boogeyman. And I just think the stories he could tell at dinner would be so intriguing. I would just love to hear what he would have to say. And it'd be, it'd be pretty creepy. I think it would. Uh, you'd have to have candles lit or something like that just to <laughs> create the mood. And then I didn't get five. The third one, this is fun. I, I, I love that book, um, The One and Only Ivan. Have you, have you read that one? No, I'm not familiar um, with it. Uh, yeah, The One and Only Ivan. Um, let me. It's, it's uh, about a, a gorilla that is staying in this kind of gas station off the side of the road uh, zoo, and it, it the whole book is written from his perspective, and it's such. It makes you think that that's what this gorilla, what gorillas actually think. She wrote it so well. Um, let me see. Let me get the. I have that book over here. I'll tell you who the author is. Um, it is Catherine Applegate and. It won the Newbery Medal. It's just a fantastic book, but it's all written from the perspective of the gorilla and what he sees. Hmm. And it's it's a sad story, but it's also um, – I think it's a very important story. But I thought having a gorilla at your dinner table would be very <laughs> interesting to see what he would do too. And he would, and just – especially this character because he has his own personality and he has his own thoughts and he, he has his opinions about humans and uh, – yeah, it was very interesting, but I thought that would be a great character because most of the other ones cool. I look around, I look at through my library, and I'm like, ah, I would not want that person here. I would not want that person at my dinner. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that would be very fun. And just because it's mostly middle grade, and I love middle grade characters, but for adults, I don't know. <laughs> it might be hard to have a, <laughs> a a good conversation over the dinner table because they're usually they're they're having their own conversations. I think that that uh, Arthur Weasley, that's a great pick. Yeah, I thought I so like too. And, and Mrs. Weasley, they would, oh, they would yeah. be. Oh man, to have them over for dinner, that would be the best. <laughs> Bring all the kids. <laughs> yeah, it would. It really would. It really would. And they're just such good people. I think of all the families, all the main character or the adults in the Harry Potter series. Those are the like the best characters. They, they just they're so loving. They're so caring. Um, they're so loyal, and they defend their family to the death. Um, yeah. They're just great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Frank, for joining us. I think that's just about going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, listeners. Uh, For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. And please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go back near the beginning of uh, the protagonist podcast. I mean, we're 160 plus episodes in, but very near the beginning, we talked about the graveyard book. And that, I think, uh, is a good companion discussion to some of what we talked about with Blackthorn Key. Or uh, we've also talked about three of the Harry Potter books and scattered episodes throughout our run. I think those uh, also uh, have a similar feel to some of what we found in this one. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Diz Minute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Frank, uh, do you have any websites or social media you would like to promote for our listeners? 
Sure. Um, my website is frankcolewrites.com. Um, it's it's pretty cool. It has all my books listed on there. It has ways to contact me. Um, if you have interest in having me come visit your school and present to to the students, I, I do that quite frequently. And uh, that's kind of one of my favorite things to do, to talk about books and reading and, and writing and, and inspiring our kids. I, I'm on Facebook, Frank L. Cole. Um, I'm on Twitter, also Frank L. Cole. Um, yeah. And so – Please follow me and, and like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm not quite the tweeter, but I'm getting there. Um, but I, I spend a lot of time on Facebook just because I'm a, a creature of old habits. So Yes. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like I'm, I think I'm finally starting to merge into Twitter right as something else is going to come along or probably has already come along Absolutely. and I don't even know it. <laughs> That's what I'm. That's what I'm afraid. Another one says I have to be on Instagram. I'm like, I don't take enough pictures. I don't even know what to take pictures of. So, <laughs> uh, once again, listeners, thank you for your support. If you would like to help us out financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation through a monetary donation by going to Patreon.com/protagonists. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. See ya. Okay, like half of this is, is cool running stuff and half is... <laughs>